It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Starlick. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we're going to be looking at farming in a big way today. But of course, first of all, we are going to look at what is well, dominating everything, of course, the virus, its effects, the suggestions that much of Britain will be closed down fairly soon, and that we won't get out of all this for 14 weeks, possibly. Mm, and for what is a global story, we're in quite an interesting position in Britain. So that's something we're going to dig into. The UK now abandoning efforts to contain the spread of the coronavirus. They're going to focus instead on delaying the worst of the outbreak. Prime Minister Boris Johnson warning that more families, many more families will lose loved ones. Quite stark uh, comments there and advised everyone with any symptoms of the virus, including a cough or a fever, to stay home for seven days and self-isolate. So let's get into this. Joining us now is Stuart Wallace, who's Bloomberg's EMEA News Director. Uh, so Stuart, as I sort of alluded to, Britain diverging quite a bit from the global picture where we're seeing schools closing, lots of bans on gatherings, a lot of faith being put in behavioural psychologists. And um, Robert Hutton, our colleague, wrote a good piece on this. Is this necessarily the way to go? Mm. I, I, that is really difficult to answer. Uh, I mean, ask me again in six months and I'll tell, you, <laughs> I'll tell you the answer. What I would say is that there is a logic there. Uh, and it is absolutely true to say that, yes, you can contain it in the way that Wuhan did and the way that Italy is trying to. And that does seem to pay dividends, you know, over the space of a month or two. The real question, the one I think the UK government is grappling with, is that doesn't solve the problem. All that does is it contains the situation temporarily, but come next winter, it's coming back with a vengeance unless we've, you know, we've hit the lottery and we've got a vaccine, which is highly unlikely, I think, by, by all accounts. So they're taking the view that better off building up herd immunity, uh, and the way you do that is to get lots and lots of people infected. Yeah, it's not a charming term, really, herd immunity, is it? What it suggests about who we are and our cattle-like tendencies. But what it means is that a certain amount of immunity enough to mean that it won't spread. Yeah, so 60% seems to be the magic number based on uh, uh, what the, uh, the medical advisor had said this morning, uh, which, you know, obviously do the maths in, in terms of UK population, that's an awful lot. However, they are stressing, and I would stress, that the vast majority of people uh, can survive this, uh, that it's not Ebola, it's not MERS, it's not even SARS, based on, on the, uh, the fatality rates we've seen so far. And again, they're, they're working on the assumption that the load on the National Health Service by far is highest in the winter, better off getting all of those cases out of the way when we're not in winter so that when the next winter comes around, A, 
we might have herd immunity by then. B, if we haven't, well, at least we'll have fewer cases and it's not going to be overload like you're seeing in Italy right now. And then another big unknown is just how quickly all of this is going to play out. We had some quite alarming advice from the government scientists yesterday saying in about four weeks' time, we're going to be catching up with countries like Italy in terms of the development. Does this mean we're going to be in lockdown in four weeks' time? Is, is, is it all doom and gloom like that? Um, again, I think very hard to say, and I'm sure the government is getting under increasing pressure to do something. I, People like the optics of schools closing down and sporting events being cancelled and so on. You know, fundamentally, will it change the reality? Uh, hard to tell. Uh, what I would say is if you look at the case of Italy, I, I think, honestly, the problem there seems to have stemmed from the fact that they were the first to ban flights from China. And so any Italian tourist immediately took a flight to anywhere else in Europe and then came back into Italy. And the Italian government had precisely zero chance of tracking any of them. So it became almost impossible. And one thing I'm, I remember you, you mentioned before is the suggestion of a second wave, that there might be, this might not be, even in somewhere like China. I mean, that's pretty alarming. What's, what's the basis for that? Well, I think, uh, look at seasonal flu. I mean, that, or, or indeed any other um, uh, viral disease. You know, it does tend to come in waves. Some of them do seem to be affected by weather, although I think there's a big question mark over whether this particular strain is affected by weather. That's, that's not certain. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, otherwise, you know, this thing doesn't miraculously disappear because it happens to be April, May or June. It's, it's, it's just that is the way it is. So every winter now we could be looking at coughs, flus and COVID-19. I hesitate to make that prediction, <laughs> clearly. Not, not, not in the business of, uh, of being alarmist. But yeah, I mean, that, that certainly seems to be the case with other types of viruses. Mm. Um, again, look, well, I, I think we've got a couple of options. One, we're going to get really lucky and discover a vaccine. Or we already have one, we just haven't realised it yet. Because what you have to remember is the same family as SARS and MERS and so mm. on. Those have been uh, getting work done on them for several years now. And it is entirely possible. And we have seen very, very early indications that Indeed, some of those may be effective, but there's no clinical trial results as far as I'm aware. Um, so I don't think we can count on it just yet. Stuart, thanks very much indeed. Stuart Wallace there, Bloomberg's EMEA News Director, bringing us up to speed with what we know about the virus and where it's going. But if you've been to a supermarket lately, you may have noticed another consequence of all this panic buying. That raises the question about how supply chains will cope with the sudden demand. Now, in the first part of our special programme on farming today, we're going to take a look at how Britain's agricultural sector is coping with the coronavirus. So joining us now is JP Dorgan. He is the Global Head of Client Services at Map of Ag. The company also has as the National Farm Research Unit, which surveys tens of thousands of farmers about topics that matter to the industry. So it was a really good idea of what farmers are saying about this sort of thing. Um, JP, let's start with, with, with a top-down view then. How do you think this is going to affect the industry? We're talking about bans on gatherings, working from home, self-isolation. For many of us that live, work in offices, that's relatively straightforward. But if you're out there in the fields, that has different implications. Yeah, good afternoon, guys. I mean, I suppose one of the one of the things is obviously farming is is pretty isolated anyway. Um, but it's it's um, you know movement of goods and and products. And let's say if you just take dairy for example, the fresh milk sector. If you've got more and more people staying at home, obviously less and less um, pressure on the food service. So you potentially could see you know less product being sold that way. But then you could look at it from another sector like livestock, livestock markets. Will we will be able to move animals around that way that potentially could be bought and sold? And then finally, just how long this might continue, you know, seasonal labour. Um, will there be able to get people in from other countries? So 
I think I think a lot of questions and uh, like early like your correspondent said just earlier, not really a lot of answers. And 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 to top it all, then we've obviously had a really bad uh, winter. We've only got about forty percent of uh, cereal crops in the ground. Um, so it's just kind of another um, added pressure and challenge within farmers, but farming community. But again, as always, farmers. You know, we we I'm farming myself in Ireland. You just got to rally around and, and do the best you can. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that farm because I gather it's in Cork, uh, JP, the family farm. Yeah. And um, I mean, there, obviously, the, in the moment, the government is taking a slightly stronger line in terms of banning gatherings of people. I mean, h- how is it going in your farm and, and the family farm at the moment? Well, I mean, funny enough, I was supposed to head back to Ireland next week and um, fly out on Thursday. And I just told my folks, look, I think with everything going on, that wouldn't be pragmatic. My dad is obviously of an older generation, so I don't want to be um, moving or bringing anything back that way. Most of our animals are in at the moment, so I suppose we're 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 beef and sheep farmers. So technically, it's not maybe having the biggest effect, but you will have a lot of farmers now starting to produce a lot of milk in Ireland, and then if there's lockdown, travel, um, who's going to pick it up and this thing? So again. It's going to have knock-on effect, and and um, and exports as well. How will that affect? Um, you know, I would reckon there's probably a lot of products maybe sitting in certain ports, potentially in China, like you know milk powder and that. Is that going to have a knock-on effect on markets? So, so potentially for a farmer, price of your uh, your produce over the next six months, you could see that coming back. Which again, we know, we all know that has massive knock-on effects for, for businesses in general. And we talked a bit about demand a moment ago. I suppose people are always going to have to eat regardless of whether they can get to the supermarket as often. So there's going to be a certain level of demand, I presume. On the supply side, is there a risk then that some farms get closed down and we end up having a sort of a, a food shortage? Or is that too alarmist to no, be talking about? I think that's, that's probably too alarmist to be talking about, really. I think, again, you know, we just need to take a pragmatic view and look, let's be fair, we're not going to die of starvation. You know, maybe we just need to rethink what we eat and and what we're going to purchase. But I suppose, again, you, you know, you people's behaviour, you just don't know what happens in these times, how they change and and, and, and what happens and what goes about. And I, and I think, you know, we just need to, I think as consumers, you know, remember the British farmer is, is here on our doorstep and hopefully they can keep doing their jobs to keep putting food within the supply chain and getting it to the relevant people that need it the most. Now, JP, one of the interesting things about this is it, it in a way, came from uh, the use of animals for food. We don't know in detail what happened in Wuhan, but in some way it seems to have transferred from animals to humans. I mean, what about the concerns going forward about that kind of issue? Because I suppose that pays into the whole lines of animal health, hygiene, animal keeping standards, all those kind of things. Yeah, look, I think uh, you you probably would need um, a veterinary surgeon qualified to discuss that. But we are very lucky here in Britain that we have one of the highest uh, standards when it comes to producing food. You know, so so to me, look, that it's it's second to none, which is fantastic. So, from a consumer point of view, shouldn't have any concerns whatsoever. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's look at the other things that are heralding big changes for the agriculture industry. For farmers, Brexit means Britain leaving the EU's common agricultural policy. Currently, they're paid subsidies by Brussels based on how much land they own. But then under the so-called Agriculture Bill, which will replace this, it's currently making its way through Parliament, farmers will instead be paid based on delivering so-called public good. And this can be anything from improving air quality and access to the countryside to better animal welfare. And on top of that, there are trade talks with, of course, both the EU and the US, which could herald big changes in areas like ex- Exporting, as well as food standards here in the UK. Well, still with us is JP Dorgan, of course, Global Head of Client Services at Map of Ag, but also joining us now to help explain all the issues in play is Sean Spears, Chief Executive of the Green Alliance, an environmental think tank. Sean, let me start with you and just say this notion of public good. Um, how is it measured? How could payments be calculated on that? Is it cost-based or outcome-based? Well, there's a, a lot of uh, really very detailed discussion going about this and the transition is going to be over seven years so I think the uh, there's, there's a big debate about how they will be calculated. I think it will be largely for the public goods that are provided. Um, that, that's the intention. But, but, but Sean, how do you what, what, what are we talking about in terms of public good? Is it because it looks nice, because it provides an amenity? I mean, what are the kind of things that count as a public good? Well, there's a list in the, in the bill uh, and you, you mentioned some of them, so managing land or water in a way that protects or improves the environment. Um, there's uh, reducing environmental hazards. I'm trying to look at the one about climate change. There's stuff about carbon sequestration, about improving the quality of soil. All the difficult questions about how exactly you measure and, and the even bigger question about how much the Treasury will provide for these public goods, they are still being determined. All right, JP, let's bring you in on this. Uh, you, I mean, you are a farmer yourself. You speak to a lot of farmers. Is the sense that farmers are going to be better off under this new system than compared to the, the, the common agricultural policy? Um, I, I suppose it depends on what you define as, as better off. I mean, um, we uh, quite recently we polled over a thousand UK farmers, you know, on this topic and, and they felt they could really help in delivering public goods, you know, in respect of soil quality, you know, about 91% of them, animal welfare, 85%, and in biodiversity 80 percent you know water quality 94 percent so you know farmers are up for this challenge um and we know we have to we know we have to be part of the solution in 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 achieving you know net zero and i think really it's not necessarily whether they're going to have the same amount of money it's just that maybe you're going to be rewarded differently and which means changing behavior so it might be that you end up planting a lot of trees on your farm, which is which is great for for carbon mitigation, but but of course that you know goes against maybe somebody's um, lifelong experience of we use that land to grow food for for the British consumer. So so it's it, it's a, in some ways for some farmers it, it might be a, a challenge to get their head around you know planting trees instead of growing crops because I suppose the way I look at it is. 
food is the first and foremost public good, isn't it? Making sure we have food uh, provided for the British consumer. Yeah, but let me pick this up with you, Sean, because one of the things I think non-farmers often find quite an odd concept is that this isn't just a business, that you, you go and you grow crops or you, or you have cattle or sheep or whatever it is, and you make money out of it and you carry on. The idea that you should be supported by the state takes it away from the concept that it's a business at all. Yeah, and that's why I think we wouldn't regard simply growing food as a, as a public good, essential though, though it is. But I, I just say that the, the way we would look at public goods is not just about planting trees instead of growing food or, or um, kind of watercourses or whatever. It was, it's about how you grow the food. You can deliver public goods through growing food in a sustainable way, through improving your soils, etc. So it matters uh, what happens in the middle of the field as well as on the edges. And I think that's the, the change in to, uh, towards a more environmentally conscious form of farming that th- this new scheme is, is meant to foster. Uh, but, Sean, in many other industries, if you want someone to do something in a certain way, you regulate rather than incentivizing them to do it. Is it simply because there was this system of subsidies in the past that they have to replace it with something similar? Or what's the thinking around having having money as an incentive here? I think there's two twofold. One is that clearly... Farmers are very dependent on their subsidies. There are lots of farmers who are uh, kind of waiting for, for their basic payment check to keep going. And so that, that you, you just need to deal with the reality. Like, nobody wants a whole lot of farmers to go out of business. And farmers across the world are subsidized in various ways. So you need to deal with the reality that farming is a subsidized sector. But if you want also to reverse the kind of and steady decline in nature that we've had in Britain for many years, then, then you need to pay for the public goods that are provided. We all benefit from clean water, we benefit from clean air, we, we benefit from biodiversity, better soils, etc. And that is, that is a public good that the state um, should, should be providing. JP, let me pick up on, on that with you, though, because do you think what you do, what your family does, is a business or is it something that, that really is a kind of public service? That's why you get the, the vast amounts of subsidy. How do you see it? Well, it has to be a business, first and foremost, because if you're not profitable, you can't obviously reinvest in your business. And most farmers would want to improve, improve their soils, you know, improve their farm and get, get better um, management um, because because they can see the returns, and I suppose look, you know, if we've got um, the new bill coming through, that's going to, I suppose, um, reward is the wrong word, but maybe incentivize to change that is of the benefit for the for the the wider public. That can that can only be a very good thing. I, I suppose one of the one of the areas really is is trying to get more engaged with the consumers, so they so they understand that you know farmers are actually trying to to do their bit um, and kind of backing them and making sure that they're they're engaged in in purchasing the produce that's produced in Britain at the standards it's produced um and and I suppose that's that's one part of the concern is depending on on imports coming in from other countries depending on the changes post brexit and JP, what about smaller farmers? Because one criticism of the common agricultural policy was that it was based on how much land you had. So if you're a big farm, you get loads of money coming in. Is there a sense that this reform will sort of level the playing field there and make things a bit easier for, for some of the smaller contributors? I think, look, I think, you know, that farming, what's happened is we, we've, we've kind of gone bigger and bigger because trying to get more efficiencies. And, and, and I suppose 
it will be interesting to see how it's going to play out over the next six to seven years. You know, you've got a changing kind of generation where you've got a lot more young people coming into farming that are embracing technology and, you know, really want to farm. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to have loads of hectares, but maybe you need to think differently about the crops or the produce you're producing or you're going direct to in market. So, you know, there's there, there, there's farms with various scales and sizes, um, and I suppose it really depends on the mindset. But yes, it is a challenge if you are a smaller farmer, um, and and I think that 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 will be the case going forward, no matter what kind of payments there are coming from from government for public goods. Sean, let me pick up on what the notices are about the the actual text of this bill and what it will do in terms of what the what the CAP didn't, because the CAP there was a lot of criticism uh, that there were incentives to destroy wildlife habitats or uh, regressive transfer of public money. I mean, do you think this bill actually addresses those issues? Well, the bill's an enabling bill, so it'll matter hugely how it's uh, implemented and interpreted in in the kind of reasonably long seven year transition period. And I think the the concern that we've we've got is that uh, alongside the incentives, the public money for public goods, the, the public money for the things for which there is no market, uh, biodiversity, etc., that you you also keep a strong regulatory baseline. And at the moment, the regulators in 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 uh, well, the, there are different regulators in different parts of the UK, but certainly the regulators in England, the Environment Agency and Natural England, who have got to enforce good practices in agriculture, are not equipped to do so. They've been so cut uh, financially over the years that you would need you would need to invest quite a lot in a in a stronger and better equipped in, environment agency in Natural England, not to kind of beat farmers with a big stick, but to help farmers do the right thing and to to enforce you know, necessary regulations. J- JP, are you worried about changes in standards? There's been lots of talk about this in the press around the EU and US trade talks. I'm talking about things like chlorinated chicken and stuff coming in through the back door and increased competition. Or, or are you seeing it more as an optimistic, um, sort of a more of an opportunity to, uh, to, to sort of create new ties with other countries? I think there's obviously an opportunity to, you know, to look to develop growing exports where, where possible with other countries. Um, but I suppose that then opens up the the chance for those com- countries to you know ex- export or us to importing um, products from from them. Now, I think it really comes back down to standards. Um, you know, you you want to you have a level playing field, um, and you want to be you know trying to sell like for like. Um, it was interesting earlier at the Oxford Farming Conference this year, they asked uh, the delegates, did they feel they had the backing of the British government um, in trade negotiations and not one person put their hand out. So that maybe gives you a feel for maybe farmers don't think they'll, they'll get the best deal out of, out of trade negotiations when it comes to food and mm-hmm. produce. But I think more fundamentally, it comes back down to um, marketing and the consumer understanding that, look, if if it does happen, which I hope it doesn't, that there is a chlorinated chicken on the shelf and there is a, a British chicken with the red tractor logo on it, that they understand that actually the difference and why they should be buying the one with the red tractor. Simple as that, really. And very briefly, Sean, this is a transition. Transitions are never easy. Is this one going to be smooth? No, it's going to be difficult, and I think the issue of standards is the absolute key one, which if I was a farmer, I'd be focusing on, because I don't believe that people will be looking out for the chlorinated chicken on the shelves. Uh, they certainly won't be if they're buying a fried chicken on a Friday night after a few drinks. The United States will try to stop labelling these things 
that it's absolutely essential that we maintain our standards both in the UK but mm. also against exports of, for, to lower environmental or animal welfare or food safety oh, standards. And that's right. the big one we haven't had the assurance on yet. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.